Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We're ready here for another episode. We've been putting this one off for a couple of weeks. We are making our dream projects come true. These are three movies each that we really, really want to see happen. But first, we have to hit the nerd news. Dave, what's going on with you? Holy crap, Microsoft just ate Bethesda. I didn't see this coming. I don't think anybody in the video game industry did. It's going to be the biggest acquisition in the history of the video game industry. Microsoft has reached a deal to acquire ZeniMax Media, the parent company of video game publisher Bethesda Softworks, for $7.5 billion, with a B, dollars. Once the deal is finalized, Microsoft will own franchises like The Elder Scrolls, Fallout, Wolfenstein, Quake, Starfield, and Doom. The deal is expected to be finalized in the second half of fiscal year 2021. In a press release, Microsoft stated, With the addition of Bethesda, Microsoft will grow from 15 to 23 creative studio teams and will be adding Bethesda's iconic franchises to Xbox Game Pass. This includes Microsoft's intent to bring Bethesda's future games into Xbox Game Pass the same day they launch on Xbox or PC. This is incredible for a number of reasons. First, Microsoft now could potentially make some of the most popular multi-platform games exclusive to Xbox and PC, cutting out Sony's PlayStation. Adding new Bethesda games to Game Pass day and date of release just helps to make Game Pass even a better value. You know, Microsoft has been criticized a lot for not having enough quote-unquote exclusive games. They spend a lot of time over the past few years buying up game studios. And if they play their cards right within the next two to three years, they could really make Sony sweat with a large roster of exclusive games. It's super interesting to me that many fans of Sony's PlayStation have spent their time on social media criticizing this deal, specifically the notion that Microsoft could make the next Elder Scrolls or Fallout game console exclusive to Xbox. Yet these same fans have spent their time lobbing the my exclusives are better than yours bombs at Xbox owners for years. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of the whole idea of exclusives. I don't think it's a pro-gamer policy. But I can understand that if Sony is using exclusives as the primary selling point, that Microsoft will feel the need to answer that in kind. Now, I really don't think that's necessarily going to happen. I think Microsoft, uh, Nintendo, and PlayStation are all playing on completely different playing fields. Sony is very traditional. Nintendo has sort of merged a handheld market with their traditional console releases. And I think Microsoft's ultimate goal is... Uh, bolstering Game Pass and making sure every gamer, PC or Xbox, has a Game Pass subscription. I don't think there's really a console war going on anymore. The idea that there has to be a winner or loser, I think, is extremely old-fashioned in this situation. I think Microsoft is playing a completely different game than Sony. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this this has me very, very excited, you know, as a, as a Microsoft user. And just to put that deal in perspective for you guys... billion. When Disney bought Marvel Studios, that was just $4 billion. And I say just, you know, whatever. But yeah, $4 billion, and this is 7.5, so that's nuts. But yeah, as you said, Doom, Fallout, Elder Scrolls, you know, even casual gamers know these names. Um, uh, Become, you know, could become exclusives. Um, They've also bought up other developers in recent years, uh, according to the research that I found. Uh, Double Fine, which made Psychonauts, Obsidian, which made The Outer Worlds, and Ninja Theory, which made Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. And according to an article that uh, I read on Tech Radar, they may not be done just yet buying up uh, other developers. So, you know, time will tell, but um, I'm super excited. You know, Game Pass, you know, with the inclusion of EA Play. Um, in, you know, kind of enveloping into that service for, for one fee, um, you know, and, and for just $5 more a month than you would pay for a regular Xbox Live Gold subscription, you're getting all these games. It's, it's an absolutely just outstanding value. Yeah, I, and like I said, I think ultimately this positions uh, Microsoft really well. I can imagine they seem to have been courting Nintendo in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of Xbox exclusives like Cuphead, for example, have showed up on the Switch recently. I could see themselves uh, them uh, I could see Microsoft trying to cut a deal with Nintendo to put Game Pass 
on the Switch. And if they get that kind of deal through, where they're basically playing ball with Nintendo, uh, ultimately Game Pass is going to be their moneymaker, not not so much their console division. All right, Chris, what do you have for the nerd news this week? Well, the starved MCU fans were given a little morsel. The WandaVision trailer was released. Fans got their first look at the Disney Plus original series WandaVision as a trailer was released during the uh, screening of the Emmys. The trailer had a record-breaking 53 million views in its first 24 hours, and that completely blew away even Infinity War's Super Bowl spot. Um, MCU fans have experienced a rare drought for the past year with the COVID-induced delays of projects like Black Widow and The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. WandaVision returns Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany in the roles of Wanda Maximoff, Scarlet Witch, and The Vision in quite possibly the most mysterious entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to date. Speculation has run rampant on this show as The Vision remained deceased even after the events of Avengers Endgame. There is plenty more to be excited for when it comes to this show, including uh, Kat Dennings returning as Darcy Lewis, who is one of the few great things about Thor The Dark World. Um... An adult, Monica Rambo, which I'm super psyched for. Um, uh, Captain Marvel, uh, as portrayed by Tiana Paris. Um, the mysterious character portrayed by Catherine Hahn, who is just hilarious to me. Like, her role in Step Brothers, like, is one of my favorite, you know, supporting actor, you know, comedic performances of all time. Uh, her character is listed on IMDb as Agnes, and a lot of fans are speculating that she is in fact Agatha Harkness, who in the Marvel Comics universe is a sorceress who survived the Salem Witch Trials, um, and served as governess to the Fantastic Four, and took care of Franklin Richards, and the tutor and mentor of Wanda herself. So, a lot of cool stuff to look forward to with this show, um... Is this an alternate reality that Wanda has constructed in her head using her reality warping powers? What is going on? Like, I got mad I Love Lucy or Bewitched vibes from this trailer. So I'm really, really excited to see. Now, no official release date has been given right now, but it says 2020 as the release year on Disney Plus when I look. So, Dave, what do you think? I I find this absolutely fascinating. I watched the trailer several times trying to get a feel for it. It's very much a teaser. It doesn't give a lot away. It just looks fascinating. The the trailer seems to sort of hop from era to era, but specifically the way television sitcoms kind of evolved with sort of the 50s sitcom. I think I saw some flashes of 70s and 80s sort of sitcom vibes. It seems to be very much playing with the format of television and the format uh, of sitcoms. And I find that to be very interesting. It seems to be um, a step in a different direction for an MCU project, which is kind of, you know, the MCU is kind of getting a little samey. They have their formula kind of down pat at this point this looks different enough to really fascinate me and i'm wondering you know is this a a multiverse situation where she's traveling through different realities or is it you know her reality bending powers which i don't think have ever been really explored on the big screen yet it's all been sort of you know uh energy swirls and levitation um and i think that's been sort of uh, a failure of the MCU to have a, a character like Scarlet Witch and never really play with the more interesting power sets uh, that she actually has. Uh, I'm also fascinated about the mystery of Vision and how he's back, if he's even real or if he's some kind of construct. Um, will the series end with her having to lose him yet again because he's actually not really there? Uh, there's, I have a lot of questions. I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting the answers. This seems different enough to really grab my interest, and I'm I'm fascinated already. Yeah, and I I think it's uh, a welcome and refreshing uh, thing that they're doing by using two characters who've served in supporting roles in previous films to finally get like their own chance to shine on the on on you know like their own project. So I'm I'm really intrigued by this, and it just really underscores as well. How, um, even in this little snippet, like how enjoyable Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany are in these roles and how fantastic they are. So um, I'm, I'm really also intrigued, you know, with the recent Fox purchase. And I'd, you know, be remiss if I didn't, you know, let my mutant fan colors show. Like, 
how does Wanda tie into the greater Marvel universe at large? She's already, you know, been rumored to be involved in the Doctor Strange uh, Multiverse of Madness, you know, film. And a lot of fans have speculated if it's almost like a flip of what the House of M comic was, where she wiped out most mutants. Is that going to be that the way that they bring mutants into the Marvel universe and kind of kind of a bait and switch there so I'm, I'm super interested to see like where this goes because this is one of the few projects where we really don't have any there's no synopsis listed online or anything we have no clear direction going forward yeah i'm, I'm particularly uh looking forward to the next doctor strange movie uh they had me uh kind of won over already when they said this is going to be sort of the first horror tinged mcu movie so i'm i'm all about uh doctor strange and the multiverse of madness already and it's featuring a director that we're going to talk about just here in a few minutes all right nerds that wraps up our first segment nerd news when we come back we're going to use our big word by talk to talk about three dream film projects that we want to see brought to the screen stick around Welcome back, nerds, to our Byword Big Talk for this week. Um, we've been kind of stewing on this episode idea for quite a while now. We've hinted at it in previous episodes, but we finally got a chance um, to make it happen. Um, we each had three dream projects of, of movies that we wanted to see made with directors and or actors or people that we wanted to see and make these movies. Um, so we each got three, as is our customary format. Dave. You are playing at my nostalgic heartstrings with the first one. What you got? Well, I, I need to talk a little bit about Gargoyles, the, the hidden golden goose, I think, uh, of the Disney company. So Gargoyles was an animated series produced by Walt Disney Television. It aired from October 24th, 1994 to February 15th, 1997. The series focused uh, on a small group of survivors of Gargoyles, creatures that turn into stone during the day and come alive at night. After spending a thousand years in a magically induced permanent stone state, they are reawakened in modern-day New York City, and they take on the role of the city's secret nighttime protectors. The show was totally my jam when I was a kid. It was so much more mature and interesting than many of the other cartoons that were on the air at the time. I taped all of the episodes every Saturday morning, and I rewatched them frequently. I adored this show. It blended science fiction, history, mythology, and Shakespeare to create something that has never been quite matched in any other story I've read or seen. Hilariously, much of the original voice cast has deep Star Trek connections. Uh, Jonathan Frakes, for example, voiced David Xanatos, the main antagonist of the early episodes. He clearly enjoyed the show and has called it in interviews later, too smart for television. So my pitch is who better to bring it to the big screen as a director? There's never been anything quite like Gargoyles on the big screen. Disney is sitting on a property that could potentially allow them to print money. This is a massive tentpole movie filled with special effects, with action, with great characters. I even have a few casting suggestions. Uh, the leader of the Gargoyles, Goliath, is an incredibly complex character with a very deep, low, booming voice. And I figured who better to voice a CGI Goliath than Jason Momoa? He'd really be pitch perfect in the role. Hudson, Goliath's old mentor, would be perfectly cast with Brendan Gleeson. He's just an incredible actor. Uh, I most recently really enjoyed his work on the TV adaptation of Stephen King's Mr. Mercedes. And I'll just say that I think Christian Bale would be fun as the new David Xanatos. Many of his roles have showed he can play a duplicious character uh, really well. Plus, he runs around with a beard and long hair quite frequently anyway. Slap that in a ponytail and you're good to go. And finally, there's uh, Eliza Maza, Goliath's ally in the NYPD. And to me, that role just screams Rosario Dawson. I love this cartoon so much, and it's so sad that it has kind of faded into obscurity. Disney just needs to revive this thing on the big screen, and they can print money. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I loved this show as a kid. Like it was one of the the you know the action figures I remember going to get in the store. Um, it featured one of the most iconic voice casts uh, that I've ever seen in a show. Like. 
like, just listen to this, like, murderer's row. Keith David, who I want to narrate my life. Like, I hear Keith David's voice, and I'm like, can he just narrate all of my life? Uh, Ed Asner was Hudson. Um, and then you basically have a Star Trek The Next Generation, you know, reunion with Jonathan Frakes. Um, you have Marina Sirtis. Brent Spiner was on for a couple of episodes. Uh, you even have Nichelle Nichols from the original series. So, like, it's it's just fantastic. And then you have um, Laura San Giacomo, uh, John Reese davies Clancy Brown, Jim Cummings. Like, it's it's just, like, incredible. Michael Dorn was there. Worf himself. Tim Curry. Cree Summer. Like, you can't beat this voice cast. Um, I'm I'm really intrigued by by uh, Jonathan Frakes. Like he's done so much great work, um, you know. Even recently, with with directing episodes of both Star Trek Discovery and The Orville. Um, so I'm I'm really intrigued to see him, you know, being directly involved with the predecessor and then you know taking this forward as well. Absolutely. I'm a big Jonathan Frakes fan anyways. I think he's incredibly underrated as a director. He's kind of flying under the radar, just churning out really good work constantly. And and to see him, you know, so connected to a franchise anyways as a, you know, voice actor on the show previously and having a love for the franchise, I think he would just be the perfect guy for this job. So Chris, what is your first dream movie project? Well, I couldn't help myself over the last couple of weeks, and I've kind of teased this one for a while. Um, it's no secret that I have massive love for Taika Waititi, and I want him to do the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I, I initially started fan casting a lot of the roles in these films, but I think that's a deep rabbit hole, especially um, with my next project. Like, when do you stop? So, like, I didn't do a lot of fan casting with these. Um, I also believe that the right director sets the tone for the film, even more so than the actor's. Um, and if I were to fan cast, I run the risk of excluding unknowns. Like I just heard a story yesterday on a, on a separate podcast where Chris Reeve was an unknown off Broadway actor when he screen tested for Superman. So if I just fan casted people, I would miss out on opportunities like that. So I may have a couple of insights as far as, as characters go. Um, but I'm, I mostly went with like the directorial side on this, but I think Taika Waititi is the perfect balance of humor and action chops for a Ninja Turtle film or series, hopefully, if we can get multiple films. Ragnarok is one of my favorite MCU films. It's one of those rare entries into the MCU where they just chose a creator and let them cook. They let them do what they do best. It's a fun adventure, and the humor doesn't seem out of place like it does in a lot of MCU films. Um, even the colors of that film and a show like What We Do in the Shadows that he has on FX, I think lends itself perfectly to an IP like TMNT. Those fluorescent, bright, neon-like colors. The biggest thing that I think Taika could do is let them be teenagers. That's the most frustrating thing, uh, even recently with the Michael Bay films, was just let them be teenagers. And that's what I love about the IDW comic series that you recommended to me, is like they're actual teenagers. Like, I have teenager children and you know we teach you know uh young teenagers and and this is you know emblematic of that you know um you know so kind of like a moratorium here on the michael bay films again let's revisit the things like that didn't work that just jumped off my head for like the first five minutes of of prep that really need to be fixed i think megan fox was such a miscast i mean she probably works in other films but not as april o'neill totally she makes she makes Kristen Stewart look like Laurence Olivier, um, <laughs> <laughs> which we both have our feelings on Kristen Stewart um, and her lack of emotion. And, you know, Megan Fox is even less so. Um, and I'm sorry, nerds, but even Stephen Amell should not have been Casey Jones. Um, I love him as Oliver Queen. I uh, love him as the Green Arrow, but it just did not work for Casey Jones. I actually love how the current IDW series handles those two characters of April and Casey. They're both either in their late teens or early 20s. Like, Casey, in the, in the current comics, like, Casey's, like, um, this teenager, or, like, he even may be, like, college, like, playing college hockey. And, like, he lives in a single-parent home with his father after his mom passed, and his dad's, like, abusive and alcoholic. And, like, he just goes out to the streets to kind of do right, you know, kind of right that wrong and bring balance to the, you know 
the karma, whatever, of the universe and then just do the right thing and the vigilante justice. And I think that's so fascinating because of character development. Um, either that, make them young. And, and in the comics, like April is like a research um, assistant in, in some kind of scientific thing or something like that. So I'll either go that route or go back to what we had with Judith Hogue and Elias Kateas in the first film. Cause that was magic. Like they're back and forth. Like, do they like each other or do they hate each other back and forth uh, between the two of those characters? And it's, it's hard to hard to improve upon on what we had in that first film. Um, WTF were those character designs in the Michael Bay films. Like, for, like for me, it wasn't even like the size like, okay, make them huge. Sure, they're mutants, whatever. Um, the size one is as, as much as a problem is how busy their equipment was. Like, they had, like, goggles and a bunch of gadgets. Like, they looked just like semi-trucks coming down with a bunch of, like, fur dice hanging. And I feel like less is more. They're ninjas. They're not going to be walking around with a bunch of equipment, like, making a bunch of noise. So um, I, I like the classic design of, like, the 87 cartoon series where they've got their belt, their mask, and their, uh, you know, weapon of choice. So I think less is more there. The only thing that I found redeemable about those films were Bebop and Rocksteady were fun. Uh, Michelangelo's jokes were great. When he was hitting on April, that was funny. Um, and the elevator scene where they were, like, beatboxing and, like, came up with their own thing because that was the only scene where they actually looked like teenagers. So um, I'm really just excited to see. And, and I did fan cast a little bit with with April O'Neil. Like, if we go for that, that, like, if we go for the reporter angle, she's had a hundred different origin stories and in, in, across different media. But if you want to go for that, like, young investigative reporter, like, really, you know, you know, in between the alleyways and all this stuff, like, I feel like someone like uh, Amelia Clark would be a good choice for that. Um, Khaleesi herself would be a good choice for that. Like I, even beyond game of Thrones, like I really enjoyed her work um, in the solo film, a star Wars story. Um, you know, so I, I, I know that she can hold her own, you know, as kind of somebody with the, with an edge to her. So I, I could see her as April O'Neil. And even in like the 2012 cartoons, they had April learning, you know, martial arts from Splinter, and I think that's an interesting route to go, even. What do you think, Dave? You know, uh, TMNT has always loomed large in my life. I adored the original cartoon, just like you. Loved the movies as a kid. Well, let's say the first two and leave it at that. Uh, the, the new movies were just so bad in comparison, and I just could not get into them at all. Um, and I really tried. I gave it every chance. I even went to see the first uh, Michael Bay uh, TMNT in theaters, and I, I kind of left feeling like I needed a shower afterwards. It just did not work for me. Um, I'd love a new theatrical version that's just good. And I agree with you that Taika Waititi is it's just such he has such a great sense of humor. Uh, he's such an, an inventive filmmaker. I think he'd be perfect to helm this kind of movie. I can't echo that enough. He's one of the most interesting directors working today. Anytime that he is announced working on anything, I just want to see what he's going to do with the property. Also, I'm, I can't be the only one who would love to see uh, somebody like Emma Stone as April O'Neil. Like, I've enjoyed her work in a lot of movies. She has a really feisty undertone anyways. I could see her doing this character really well. But, but you know, as you said, fan casting is difficult because we kind of... Uh, leave out the unknowns and the possibility of discovering new stars. Ultimately, you're right. I, I would say Taika Waititi is perfect for TMNT. Dave, you're going to Legends canon of Star Wars for the next one. What you got? I do not call it Legends, sir. It, <laughs> it, it is the expanded universe. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, I don't think there's a serious Star Wars fan who didn't at least have a brush with Grand Admiral Thrawn at one point or another. The master strategist, the Imperial Grand Admiral, he's just one of the best Star Wars characters, period. And the original uh, Thrawn trilogy, written by Timothy Zahn, was released at a time when there was no new Star Wars. This was it, the official continuation of the Star Wars story. And when it came out, I ate it up. 
The story picks up five years after Return of the Jedi. The Rebellion has become a government, a new republic, which finds itself under attack from the Imperial Remnant under new leadership uh, of the mysterious Grand Admiral Thrawn. Luke is a full Jedi Knight, but he's still on a mission seeking out information about the Jedi and their ways, still trying to recapture what was lost when the Jedi Order was wiped out. Leia and Han are expecting twins in this story. This series of books introduced the race of the Nogri, fan-favorite character uh, Mara Jade, who will eventually become uh, Luke Skywalker's wife in the Expanded Universe, and it explores the idea of clones uh, with a clone of a famous Jedi who, because of the cloning process, is decidedly unstable. Luke even has to face off against his own clone at one point in the story. Zahn's Star Wars is still some of the best Star Wars, even if it's now officially out of continuity. My point with this project is simply this. It doesn't have to be out of continuity. So here's my dream project. An animated Star Wars trilogy based on the original Grand Admiral Thrawn trilogy directed by Dave Filoni. Much of what happens in the trilogy could still work within the new continuity. We could finally see the thing that we ultimately are missing most in this new continuity, which is Luke Skywalker at his best. Luke Skywalker in his prime, the full Jedi. You tweak the story a little bit to make it fit. I mean, for example, instead of Leia and Han expecting twins, they're expecting Ben Solo. Very few other things actually would even need to be tweaked. There is a lot here that that can still stand in the new continuity. Casting is obvious. Mark Hamill is a voice actor extraordinaire to begin with. You bring him back to voice Luke. I'm sure he would be open to that. He has previously said he's done playing Luke Skywalker, but if it's not live action, I, I could see him doing it again. If you can get Harrison Ford, yay, but that seems unlikely. But there's still Alden Ehrenreich, who uh, played Han Solo in the prequel movie. It would also be a great tip of the hat to Carrie Fisher to bring her daughter, Billy Lord, on to voice uh, Leia in the story. You know, when Disney announced that they were making a sequel trilogy, most fans of the Expanded Universe were hoping for a version of this story. And there is still room for this story in the new continuity. Disney, give us heir to the Empire. Bring it back into continuity and shovel money because fans will give you all their cash. I'm ready. I I have the money set aside. I will buy a ticket to each animated movie as it screens on the big screen. I'm there. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I still have these books that I borrowed from you. I haven't uh, dove into them yet. I'm still consumed with the X-Men. But I- I'm I'm really interested in this series. Um, and every time like I-, I go by where I have them stored, I look longingly at them. Like, I have too much to do right now. I would just dive into them. But I'm, I'm so interested, especially after our interview with John Jackson Miller uh, from a couple of months ago. I loved his answer on this uh, expanded universe and, and how it's quote-unquote not canon, but it could be canon. And, you know, like like you said, you could easily adjust this to make it fit with continuity. And there's no person, you said the magic words, Dave and Filoni next to one another. So there's no person that I trust, uh, I trust more with Star Wars content than him. So I would love to see this. Um, the, uh, even the way that the animation evolved, um, from the early Clone Wars seasons into Rebels and, and then to the finale, the crescendo of, of Clone Wars was fascinating to watch as well. So I'd, I'd be definitely interested to, to check this out. Yeah, you know, I'm. I can. I could sit here and reminisce all day just about my my first brush with this with these books and how it reawakened the, the love of Star Wars in me at a time when there was no Star Wars, no no Clone Wars, no cartoons, no prequels, no sequels. The only way to get more Star Wars were were the books, the expanded universe, and and this was the best. Um, there's a wonderful sequence where Luke Skywalker is stranded on a planet where the predators hunt using the force. And so there are creatures who have developed the ability to basically create a bubble in the force where the force doesn't exist. And so he has to make his way through this jungle without access to the force. And it just it illustrates perfectly how awesome Luke Skywalker is as a character. And considering how the, how the sequel trilogy went and, and how they had a very different take on Luke, Seeing this Luke Skywalker in action just once would be incredible. All right, Chris, what is your next dream project? Well, you knew it had to happen. 
Um, I want, you know, the X-Men coming into the MCU. Um, and my choice for director is Ava DuVernay. Um, this is a film project where the choice of director is paramount. Like, it, it is so important. Um, Ava DuVernay made a life-changing documentary for me with a, a, show, a movie called 13th, which is on Netflix. Uh, examines the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery, but left a loophole that has led to the overpopulation of America's prisons by African Americans. Um, so that was really eye-opening to me. She's also done um, work with films like Selma, uh, When They See Us is on Netflix as well, and then um, Disney's A Wrinkle in Time. So um, she's done the big budget films for big studios like A Wrinkle in Time. Um, she's also set to direct The New Gods for DC, which I'm fascinated to watch and see that develop going forward. Um, I think that the main reason that the Fox films didn't work is because who was behind the entire universe and building that. And an individual like Brian Singer, um, who I could take an entire podcast talking about, but um, I'll leave it at that. You know, being the person in charge of most of that universe is why those characters did not get, you know, their due justice. When you have a character like Rogue who is the mo- one of the most powerful individuals like in the mutant community, being this shy, little, shriveled-up like teenager like who's so weak. It's just really frustrating. Um, when you have my personal favorite character in all of comics, like Kitty Pride, being basically just like a, an extra in the films, um, it is really frustrating. Um, and... Also, they cast stars like Halle Berry um, in the interest of star power rather than making the best choice for the film. Um, Halle Berry is a very talented actor, um, and she has a lot of projects that that she's successful with and and work. But um, nerds in the DC and Marvel Marvel family uh, remember Catwoman, and they remember the the poor, you know, uh, transition of of her being, you know, translation to screen of her being Storm. Um, So... We said this off camera a couple of weeks ago, but this movie needs to mean something in 2020 and, you know, into the future. And I think a director, uh, a director like uh, Ava DuVernay could deliver on that hope um, with projects like 13th, um, When They See Us, which covers the Central Park Five, um, and Selma, which, you know, covers the civil rights movement and, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, it's no secret, like, the allegory between mutants and being hated by the world just for being different. It's no secret the allegory with that, with being a minority, with being mistreated, with, you know, being, you know, uh, prejudiced against and, and being discriminated against. Um, I did, I get, this is, this is the film that I went down the rabbit hole with when it came to fan casting. So this is the one I was like 15 mutants deep with fan casting. I was like, Oh my God, I have no life. Like, I, but um, I hinted at this with our Mike Lawrence episode. I'd love to see John Boyega as Cyclops. Like, I feel like he has, like, that swagger of being the leader. I loved what little they gave him with Finn. Um, and also, just even in real life, he speaks out and speaks up for what he feels is right. You see him a lot of, of political rallies and, you know, being a voice for the community. And I can totally see Cyclops in that moment. And like I said before, if you switch out the Ray for Gene, it works. So, um... I went a little bit different, um, a little bit off-key, with kind of an unknown when it came to Jean Grey. Like, this is a really important casting that you have to get right. And I feel like Famke Johnson was one of the few that was pretty good in in the Fox films. Like, I was okay with that casting. It wasn't wow. Um, You know, the storyline and the the choices that the directors made, you know, were awful. But I feel like her portrayal was okay. Um, my Jean Grey is Jane Levy from a show called, um, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist that's on NBC right now. It's like a musical, but like, she's got like this feistiness, like, and like, but wants to do the right thing that, that, that really is, you know, eminent in, in Green Jay, uh, in, in Jean Grey. First Storm, uh, a, another really, really important, uh, Casting, I went with Sonequa Martin-Green from Star Trek Discovery. Um, Excellent I, choice. I, I I can't say enough about her as Michael Burnham. 
like it's just fantastic and it keeps me coming back to that show just for her character and the strength of her portrayal um gambit i did before was tom ellis from lucifer like uh, he can just be whatever he wants to be because he's so talented um you know rogue is another one and i couldn't find a perfect rogue she needs to be in there so i'll go with like the mutants that i think need to be in this film and if you want to fan cast them go for it i think the original five maybe you can exclude angel angel i'm sorry i'm not a big angel fan but like you need cyclops you need gene you need storm um you need wolverine um i'd like to have gambit and rogue i think that's um always a fascinating thing that you look at in the comics is like they're in this romantic relationship but they can't kiss they can't hug because of the you know rogue will touch you and 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 all that and i feel like they really better do rogue justice in this movie series because you know it was so underwhelming and then kitty pride who can forget kitty pride like she's the best and then you know nightcrawler and you see where i'm going like i could go on for 15 long so um, I love the X-Men and I, it, it doesn't even have to be for me in the MCU. It doesn't have to be in a connected universe because they have a deep enough universe. They have enough of a rogues gallery in their own with apocalypse Magneto. Ah, those are the other ones for professor X. I had Hugh Laurie from house. Ooh. Um, and then good choice. For, and then for Magneto, I had Daniel Craig because I, I, I could, after I saw him in Knives Out, that man can do anything. If you haven't seen Knives Out, nerds, go watch Knives Out. Daniel Craig can do anything under the sun. He was also in a great movie that not a lot of people watch called Defiance about World War II and like this this upstart you know group from from Europe that like fought against the Nazis. Fantastic film. He and Lee F. Schreiber are fantastic in that film. Um, but Daniel Craig was my Magneto. I wanted somebody that was still like you know I I love the Jim Lee era magneto magneto is my favorite you know mutant character villain or hero um depends on the run that you're reading but i love jim lee era magneto the big muscly like oh let me take off my helmet and i have these long flowing locks and i think you know daniel craig can bring that handsome um commanding character to the screen but yeah um, like i said i could go on forever about the x-men but i, I just want to see a good x-men movie please yeah, you know what? I agree with that. I want to see a good X-Men movie too. And I really like the idea of a person of color helming an X-Men movie. Somebody who has experienced disadvantages of living as a member of a minority group would bring authenticity to the story of the X-Men, would make sure that it rings true. Um, so I love that notion. You know, I think movie makers have learned a lot about how to adapt a comic book since the original X-Men movie. My worry, ultimately, is that the Marvel movie formula of light humor with big action will make genuine social commentary and depth in storytelling very difficult. Marvel is going to have to open themselves up to different types of movies rather than trying to continue making the same movie over and over again with different characters. An X-Men movie in 2020 or you know, 2022, 2023 in our time needs to mean something. You're exactly right. You, you can't have a light and fluffy X-Men movie. You know, I harp a lot on Spider-Man's MCU appearances. I love the casting and I love the acting. But I never really felt like he was Spider-Man in the kinds of problems he faces. You know, Peter was always financial difficulties and street-level quandaries. And, and now he's Iron Man Jr. with access to a satellite defense network and high-tech AI in his Spider-Man suit. It's just not quite the character. They were so desperate to make a different from what Sony had done before. That they went too far in the opposite direction. And they're just a hair off capturing the essence of the character. And I'm afraid they're going to do something similar with X-Men. You know, that they're going to say, well, you know, you've seen these characters this way before, so we're going to go in a way different direction and, and make them almost unrecognizable. And a strong director with a clear vision at the helm, given the freedom to tell a story that has meaning, is going to make sure that we get a good X-Men movie. So my hope is that Marvel is going to open up their range a little bit in their movie making and, and decide that they're willing to make a complicated, a, a deep movie with social commentary and not just light and fluffy jokes. 
Yeah, I, I, I hope that that's the case too. And I share those frustrations with Spider-Man, my, you know, my favorite superhero. Um, and I was excited to see him into the, you know, you know, connected universe. But then at the same time, I was like, this is undermining everything that Peter does. Like when you have him as Tony's protege, you're completely undermining the fact that Peter's a genius in his own right. Um, the fact that he creates all of his own equipment, he that they did hit, they did give him the credit of creating the web fluid, so they let him shine a little bit with that. But everything else, like, and when I think back to, I've read almost every issue of every Spider-Man comic ever. My least favorite ones were when he's part of the Avengers. Those aren't they don't they aren't my favorites. Like, um, I don't love those. Um, my favorite ones are when it's street level. He's helping the burrito lady. Uh, or the churro lady. Is it churros? churros. I want to say it's churros. Churros. Um, you know, like, he's like the everyman. It's what we all love about Peter Parker. That's what drew us to the character is because he's us. Um, and and so I think a lot of that was lost when you make him Tony Stark Jr. Um, you know, with us transitioning into the next phase of the MCU, hopefully that will bring, you know, less you know, service to the titans of the MCU. Um, but yeah, especially with my final project, I'm, I'm going to need some, some you know, creative liberty as well. But Dave, you're going a completely different direction with your last one. What you got? Well, what can I say? I, if I don't talk about the weird and odd, it wouldn't be Dave on the nerd byword. <laughs> I need to talk a little bit about hack and slash. Uh, so... A few weeks ago, uh, I talked about a comic book that's near and dear to my heart, Witchblade, uh, specifically the Ron Mars run. And I talked a little bit about the idea that I love the character and I love the concept, but I always had my issues with the fan servicey nature of the visuals uh, in the Witchblade comic book. And Hack and Slash is a little bit the same way. I love the concept. I love the writing. Uh, it's very clever. Um but and I love the characters, but ultimately there is this this fan servicey nature to the visuals again that kind of bugs me. Um, so Hack and Slash is a, a comic book series created by Tim Seeley. It was initially published by Devil's Due before moving to Image Comics. The story centers basically on horror movie tropes, specifically those of the slasher movies such as Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth. The series basically sets up the notion that slashers are people so full of anger that they don't want to die, so they come back to kill the things they miss from their own lives, youth, love, sex, those sorts of things, which is very much uh, in the horror movie slasher trope. It always seems that those are the people that are victims of slashers. The protagonist of the story is Cassie Hack. She has a close encounter with a slasher at the age of 17, her own mother whom she has to kill to survive. The series focuses on her as a mid-twenties slasher hunter. She's made it her mission to hunt down and kill all slashers. And she's aided in this pursuit by Vlad, a mountain of a man with a deformed face who wears a very distinctive mask to hide his deformity. And the two together crisscross the country looking for slashers and trying to protect people. And I love this concept, and I think Sam Raimi was really made for this kind of movie. His background in horror movies makes him the perfect candidate. There is something very goofy and humorous uh, about Hack and Slash, while at the same time having emotional moments and lots of scares too. And this reminds me very much of his work on something like uh, The Evil Dead 2, where he was willing to have scary stuff, but he also had this sort of slapstick humor approach, and he meant merged those two together so well. So I could see Sam Raimi basically uh, putting the, the perfect twist on an old, tired horror movie trope with a hack-and-slash movie. If they do ever make a movie, I'd hope they would tone down Cassie's outfits a little bit. Uh, she definitely has a goth thing going on, but the outfits are very revealing and fan servicey. And I think you can capture her character and her look without going so overboard in that particular aspect. It's just, it, it, it feels odd. Uh, in this day and age, looking back at some of those comic books. As for casting, I could totally see Catwoman herself, Zoe Kravitz, pull off this kind of role. And for Vlad, I really like, like the idea of the mountain himself from Game of Thrones uh, having the, this physical presence of, of Vlad. I think it would be spot on. Um, but ultimately, 
I, I just I really always love horror movies, but I also love it when a story comes along that can take horror movie tropes and do something different with them, put a spin on them that we haven't seen before. And this is almost like this Dexter level, you know, serial killer of serial killers. Here you have the the person that is out there killing the horror movie slashers before they can kill others. I think this has mad potential for a really, really fun little movie. And Sam Raimi would be the perfect guy for this. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, this is super interesting to me. I have, like, no experience with it whatsoever. Um, A lot of image, like, I, I really don't have next to any experience with image comics. I know that it was, like, like a big thing in the 90s being like this rebellious like um you know new you know publisher or whatever and and so like they went a lot of ways with this with the art choices so that much i do know um but uh, i'm really intrigued by the choice of sam raimi my experience with his work is strictly spider-man but i know of his other work with with horror and the supernatural with the evil dead and all that um I also found it really, really interesting. Talk about, you know, a diversity in your work experience. He's done a lot with, like, historical period pieces, like Xena Warrior Princess and Hercules and, and, and Spartacus. Um, so that's super interesting to me. I'm also, and we hinted at this earlier, I'm super excited to see what he does with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So um, now that, uh, you know, I'm opening myself up to more horror esque films uh, as we'll talk about in a few minutes uh you know this would be something i'd definitely be interested in seeing i love like the concept of like a bounty hunter type story like i love boba fett he's one of my favorite star wars characters um blade is a fascinating character in marvel um i'm excited to see what they do with mahershala ali um going forward to that the wesley snipes movies were fantastic um but yeah this is definitely definitely interesting and definitely you know can you know, consistent with your with your personality, Dave, is definitely out there, and I did not see coming. <laughs> and I will say, I have the first five volumes of the Omnibus editions of Hack and Slash, and I have read them several times. You know, despite my misgivings with some of the fan servicey aspects of the art, uh, ultimately, there's a really good core concept there. There's a lot of fun stories. Uh, and I think uh, audiences would take to this kind of project on the big screen. All right, Chris, that brings us to your final entry, Dream Movie Time. What do you have? Um, I went MCU again, but um, I, I want to, I, I, again, and I don't need a connected universe per se. I just want a good Fantastic Four. So you can even cancel out the MCU tag. I just want a good Fantastic Four. And my choice of director um, is one that you chose for one of yours. I want Jonathan Frakes to do the Fantastic Four. Um, he directed one of the best um, Star Trek films uh, in First Contact. Um, definitely the best of the Next Generation era films. Um, I think that the main reason why the Fantastic Four films haven't worked is because they don't understand the characters or the purpose of the Fantastic Four. The, the FF are the closest thing to science fiction that Marvel has. Um, it's super cosmic. It's super weird. It's super, you know, outer space. Um, and I think somebody like Jonathan Frakes is the person, uh, perfect person to bring that to life. Um, I feel like, and, and we're not, we're not referencing at all the, what was it? 2015 fan film at all. Fan, like, I think is the technical pronunciation. <laughs> we don't reference that film at all. That is just an abomination and we'll just set it aflame. Um, and it wasn't even, oh God, I could go on forever, but it wasn't even the cast in there. Like some of those casting choices were kind of promising. Um, Michael B. Jordan, like I love just about everything that dude does. Like, you know, Killmonger is probably one of the strongest villains in the MCU. Um, he's great in the Creed films. Um, but, you know, th- that's neither here nor there. But like, I'm, I'm talking about like the original Fantastic Four film from like, the early 2000s and then the rise of the silver surfer film the reason that those films didn't work they didn't understand those characters and they just made them goofy caricatures of themselves like they played up the ooh read is stretchy aspect instead of he's the most brilliant man in the marvel universe and a lot of the the re- like i would almost bring um jonathan hickman 
on as like a special consultant, similar to to what they do with George R. R. Martin with the Game of Thrones, uh, what they did with the with those series. Because Jonathan Hickman, to my experience, um, you know, Stan is no longer with us, but uh, Jonathan Hickman understands the characters of the Fantastic Four and that entire universe better than anyone I've ever seen in comics, um, outside of Stan and Jack themselves. Um, so it feels like every portrayal of the Invisible Woman, of Mr. Fantastic, of the Human Torch, um, of the thing were just like campy, goofy caricatures of those characters instead of understanding them at their core. Um, and I feel like he could really bring something to each and every one of those characters. I mean, like who better to talk about Johnny storm and that playboy esque ness than will Riker himself, who was Mr. Lothario of the enterprise. And you know, like, he gets Johnny Storm, and then he, you know, could also bring Mister Fantastic, and uh, and and you know all the encounters of the different types of aliens and species. You know what it's like to be Ben Grimm and be different and like be hated just because of the way that you look. You know how many times did Next Generation, you know, you know, attack those you know prejudices and and, and everything. So um, I, I would love to see. I didn't fan cast anybody there. Um, just, just make it good. I just want a good Fantastic Four movie, and I feel like if you've got the right decision top down, with 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 the, a director like Frakes, and you give them that creative creative liberty, like they can just make magic happen, and the casting will will work itself out. And uh, I, I just want a good movie. What do you think, Dave? You know, I've not uh, I've not read that much uh, mainline Marvel Fantastic Four. I did have a, a really good time reading Ultimate Fantastic Four for a little while, um, and that's really up, you know, ultimately because of Ultimate Spider-Man, haha, <laughs> ultimately. But uh, Ultimate Spider-Man was just such a good book, and then when they launched Ultimate Fantastic Four, I said, oh, well, that's a perfect jumping on point, and I can kind of figure out who the Fantastic Four are. And I read Ultimate Fantastic Four uh, straight through till they canceled the series and really enjoyed it. And you are right, it's very much a science fiction property, first and foremost, and I never got that vibe off of any of the movies, really. Um, so besides the fact that you're stealing my director for Gargoyles, <laughs> um, I will totally agree that we need uh, somebody who has a deep understanding of science fiction, uh, we need a, a science fiction-based approach to the uh, the property, Um and I think you're right across the board with all of your suggestions. I will admit, when it comes to the fan casting thing, that I am on board with the the big push online from fans. Uh, John uh, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt as Reed and Sue would be fantastic, no pun intended. Uh, Krasinski has proved himself to be a very good writer and director as well. Um, Really, if we're going to get you into horror movies, you need to get a chance to check out The Quiet Place at some point. Uh, That thing was his baby, and it was very, very good. Um, And I will literally watch anything Emily Blunt does. Her acting is mesmerizing. And I always find her believable in in pretty much every role she takes. One of the problems of the original Fantastic Four movies was, I think, casting to some extent. Not everybody that they cast was believable in their roles. And I don't mean to be unkind towards Jessica Alba because she's quite a capable actress. But Sue Storm was probably not the best role for her. Sue is a very hard character, I think, for actors to get right, and they would need a very talented actress to to completely capture that. And I think Emily Blunt could. So, yeah, a good Fantastic Four movie would be, well, fantastic. Yeah, and I I would love that dynamic of of the two of them actually being married in real life, and, like, you wouldn't even have to try to... to really catch anything with chemistry like they would just already have it um my only i guess i just need to do watch more of krasinski's work because i've watched the office about 20 times all the way through and it's hard for me to see jim helpert do anything serious so i guess i just have to expand my my viewing experience Oh, absolutely. I mean, The Quiet Place, he wrote, directed, and starred in that movie. Uh, and he actually, you actually get to see the on-screen chemistry with Emily Blunt because she started his wife in that, as, the, in, as his wife in that movie as well. Um, and then he did a show uh, based on... Jack Ryan, who, I believe. 
Jack Ryan, that is correct, on Amazon. I watched the first season of that, and he is totally believable in that role. So, yeah, you, you kind of see him as a character in The Office, but he has definitely expanded his horizons, and I could, I could see him working as Reed Richards. All right, that wraps up our Byword Big Talk for this week. These are our dream projects, uh, things that we would like to be brought to screen here in the near future. But when we come back, we are foregoing our nerd commendations for the month of October. And we're getting a little spooky. Nerd Nightmare after we come back. All right, nerds, welcome back to a new segment that we're going to be running through the month of October, Nerd Nightmare. Now, as you know, as a longtime listener, I am a big fan of scary movies. Chris, however, is a big old chicken. So this month, we decided to try to pluck his feathers and get him involved in some scary movies. And we started with a viewing of George A. Romero's classic Night of the Living Dead from 1968, an American independent horror film that he both uh, he wrote, he directed, he photographed, and he edited. Uh, he was actually uh, had a co-writer on the project, John Russo, and the movie starred Dwayne Jones and Judith Odea. The story follows seven people who are trapped in a rural farmhouse in western Pennsylvania, which is under assault by a growing group of cannibalistic undead corpses. It formed a blueprint for an entire sub-genre in horror, the zombie flick. And here we have Chris's reaction. Chris, after watching Night of the Living Dead, what are your thoughts? Um, first and foremost, why did they have to kill my guy Ben? Like... It has been a long time, a long time, since I have rooted for a character like I rooted for Ben in this movie. Not only was it like a landmark thing for them to cast a black lead in 1968, just like sit back and appreciate that for a moment. And then he has to die at the end of the movie because like it's too much of a good thing. Like, ah, man, like he immediately shows up and just like takes the entire film in the palm of his hand and we're like, we're doing this. Like, he immediately comes into this farmhouse and, like, starts finding wood, finding hammers and nails, and starts boarding up the house. And Barbara's just, like, losing her mind. Oh, oh, Johnny, Johnny. And Ben's just like, girl, if you don't <laughs> stop. Um, and so, like, and then Ben has to deal with a bunch of Karens throughout, like, this whole movie. You have this doofus come upstairs. I forgot that dude's name, but it doesn't matter. Uh, I think it was Harry or yeah, Henry. Yeah, it doesn't matter because he's an idiot. So, like, he starts challenging, <laughs> obviously, the only capable character in this film. And then you got this doofus jock with a two-tight t-shirt and his doofy girlfriend with her denim jacket. Like, if she should have taken her denim jacket off, she for no reason, like, runs out with them. Like, I want to be with you. And, like, when they're trying to go get gas. And then doofus, I forgot his name. It doesn't matter because he's just a doofus. Um, he can't. He doesn't know how to pump gasoline, and then he just splashes gasoline all over um, the the one vehicle that could get them out of there. Um, just like he goes to do the pump, and then inexplicably starts just like hosing the entire vehicle when they have like multiple torches with gasoline. Great choice, buddy. And then um, I'm sorry, but they got what they deserved because they died um, in in a fiery fiery explosion. Um, because his girlfriend's jacket got caught. Girl, take that jacket off and get out of the truck. Um, and then poor Ben <laughs> tries to come back inside and the doofus bald guy is like, I'm not going to let him in. Um, but the best part of the movie, best part of the movie is when he beats the crap out of the bald guy for not letting him back in the house, followed closely by when ba he's trying to, like, help Barbara. Like, he's the only one who gives a crap about Barbara. They're ready to leave her up there in the living room. And, like, he's actually doesn't even know this chick, and he's trying to help Barbara, who doesn't have enough A's in her name. They spell it weird. Um, and he's, like, trying to help her or whatever, and she, like, tries to slap him, Karen. Um, and then he beat, he just, like, like comes back with this, like, haymaker and knocks her out, and it's, it's a great moment. Yeah. Why did my dude Ben have to die? I love Ben. I stand and I ride for Ben. Yeah, I, I tell you, you're right. I mean, the ending is bleak, but it's so typical for horror movies. The more you watch those, the more you realize that the ending of a horror movie seems to be the hardest thing for creators to get right. 
They don't want to give you quite a happy ending, and then they swerve too far in the opposite direction. Even Stephen King legendarily has, uh, you know, really, really difficult time getting the ending of some of his stories right. But man, I love this movie. Rewatching it was a joy. You know, I love a small, independent, cheaply made horror movie. It almost feels like a stage play. It has this cool claustrophobic set for most of the uh, movie, really ramps up the tension. And then there's this inner character tension too with these people that are stuck together, that don't know each other, and they don't want to have anything to do with each other. And you're right, Ben is just simply the best. I love Dwayne Jones' performance. He's a total bamf in this movie. His interactions with this with Harry or, or Henry, I love, he says something like, it's tough for a kid when his old man's so stupid. <laughs> I mean, he's just ice cold. And I also like what he says to him. Get back in the cellar. You could be the boss yes. down there. I'm the boss up here. Like, this is 1968. For a African-American protagonist to look at a white character and say those words, it's just a great, great moment. You know, I also really enjoy still that these first zombies are a little more inventive than what we have today in pop culture. Like the very first zombie we get on screen picks up a brick and starts <laughs> breaking out the car window. They're just a notch more intelligent in 1968. You know, the biggest problem, and you touched on this with this movie in retrospect for modern audience, is Barbara. I mean, she's supposed to be a main character, and she's almost completely passive and utterly hysterical. You know, at the 30-minute mark, when Ben punches her out to stop her from leaving the house, I almost had to cheer because the 1960s stereotype of hysterical woman had worn out its welcome long time ago at that point. I also really still love the special effects. This movie was made so dirt cheap, and some of those things that they did with the zombie effects, you, you see hints of Romero's eventual follow-up and classic in its own right, Dawn of the Dead, which gets so incredibly gory. So do you would you say, Chris, that, that this was an enjoyable experience for you, despite the fact that you generally don't watch horror movies? It, it's interesting, because um, it was really interesting thinking about like the less is more that I've heard about with horror, like a lot of Hitchcock films I've been told about, that like, they, what they don't show you is the scariest part, um, and then that was um, the probably the scariest, quote, the quote unquote, scariest part is when like all those hands start coming through the boards in the door. That was like, oh, <laughs> like um, whoops, um, and I felt like claustrophobic. Um, you know, whatever I could feel like those hands were reaching for me, so I wasn't really, really scared. I was just frustrated. And um, you and several fans have told me um, that like this film was like the predecessor and like established a lot of the tropes for horror movies. And the first one that jumped off the screen to me is the biggest trope was like the dumb white girl in a horror movie. Like, Oh my God, it's insufferable. Yeah. I was almost expecting her to trip or something. Like it's just Barbara is such a, a difficult character. I think in this movie. Now I know they made a remake of this in um, the nineties. I want to say, I think it was 1990. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. Um, and I didn't like it quite as well. I don't think it got the atmosphere quite right. But, you know, the best thing to say about the remake is that they did try to make Barbara a more proactive character in that version. Um, and, and for that, at the very least, although I'm not the biggest fan of remakes, uh, for that, at least, I can, you know, commend that uh, remake because whew, Barbara's a tough one in this movie. You get very frustrated the longer you watch it. Well, that wraps up our first ever nerd nightmare. Wasn't too bad. I did have some weird dreams afterwards, so not necessarily a nightmare, but um, I'm certainly not looking forward to where we're going next week. But um, so thanks for joining in with another episode of the Nerd Byword. Uh, we appreciate your support. Um, if you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a, a five star review um, and and you know a comment. Tell us how you think we're doing. What you'd like to see in the future. Um, we're also available on Spotify. We have audio episodes on YouTube as well. You can also find um, episodes at our website, nerdbyword.com. Uh, we also recently joined iHeartRadio, so you can find our podcast on iHeartRadio as well. Uh, and we're taking a look at maybe adding uh, our podcast to Amazon Music as well, since Amazon is now hosting podcasts. Uh, please spread the word. Let people know about this uh, podcast. If you have friends that are nerdy, uh, let them know that uh, we're out there and uh, we are always looking for new listeners for our ramblings on nerd culture. You can also find us on social media, uh, 
on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and individually as that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris. And you can also find our Facebook page at the nerd by word. Uh, but thanks for stopping by and we'll see you again next week. Stay well and stay nerdy. The nerd by word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>